Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. can feel in the room it's starting to settle and it makes me think that uh, it's such a hassle getting here we should just keep going for you know at least a week because uh, once you get organized and start to just know the rhythm we should just keep going so uh, we'll have a break to call our child care providers and whatever <laughs> work uh, I'll sign the pink slip for you. <clears throat> I'll start with a passage from a, a writer, and a lot of people don't know that he was also a Zen teacher who passed away a couple of years ago named Peter Matheson. Um, I've met a few amazing men in my life. Uh, two of them uh, that really stand out. One is Paul Newman who was really an amazing uh, human being. Um, and the other is Peter Matheson. And they're really similar, actually, in many ways. And um, both I met when they were elderly. And uh, both, what stood out to me is they're very elegant. Um, mm. And come from an era where people were gentlemen. Do you know about this? <laughs> yeah. They're like old-fashioned... <laughs> Um, like elegance and custom that uh, anyways really appeals to me and um, so uh, anyways if you don't know Peter Matheson's work uh, you should he's uh, uh, not only a great writer um, but also um, he was a serious Zen practitioner and eventually became a student ordained by Bernie Glassman. So, I'll start with uh, Peter. There are channels of communication, ways of seeing for which our very limited idea of reality has no vocabulary. And there's nothing supernatural about these channels. They are natural attributes of mind that can be reopened through yoga or Zen meditation training or by the Eskimo technique of carving big circles of soft stone or by the dances of the Bushmen and the Dervish and the Pueblo which obliterates the structures of the intellect allowing what an Indian has called 
the big heart powers to rush in. I'll read it again. That's what I'm going to talk about now. There are channels of communication, ways of seeing, which our limited idea of reality has no vocabulary. And there's nothing supernatural about these channels. They are natural attributes of mind that can be reopened through yoga or Zen meditation training or by the Eskimo technique of carving big circles of soft stone or by the dances of the Bushmen and the Dervish and the Pueblo, which obliterates the structures of the intellect, allowing what an Indian has called the big heart powers to rush in. Two things I really love. One is this idea of big heart powers, like superpowers. And the other is that uh, it's a run-on sentence. <laughs> So we have so many plans uh, for how to escape our lives. You've been watching them? <laughs> and because of that, we miss uh, so many of these heart powers because we can't see uh, and feel how our body is constantly in relationship um, within and without. And so we can't tune into other people because we're so obsessed with our own plans for escape. Or we only think about other people in terms of our own plans for escape. And you know those plans. They're all plans. <laughs> all plans, pretty much, are plans of escape. But we also know, because now we're starting to calm down a little bit, that when we feel secure, when our base is secure, and when we feel settled, a sympathy arises. We're more sympathetic to our own insanity. Oh, busy mind. It's okay. More sympathetic to pain in our knee or our back or shoulders. Oh, pain. It's okay. And maybe even more sympathetic to suffering. Maybe we suffer and it's okay. Maybe suffering's not so bad after all. We're learning all this in the context of the Buddha's teaching on fear. And I think all of us can see that when we're anxious and when we're fearful and when we're scared, it's really hard to concentrate. It's hard to find our breathing. It's hard to feel that our body's trustworthy. It's hard to feel that other people are trustworthy. It's hard to feel the natural world is trustworthy. And we kind of lose track of where to turn to, uh, to feel security. And also when we're in fear, the empathic part of our brain gets turned off. We lose empathy for our own experience and we lose that kind of empathic ability to connect with other people's experience. If your world's dominated by anxiety, you tend to not have a lot of resources for other people. And it's hard for you to feel your way into other people's experience because you're just managing the tension in your own experience. 
So the first thing the Buddha did is he started examining how past karma, past karma, past activity, uh, comes in to create the conditions for fear. They exacerbate fear. Some fear is healthy and some is unhealthy, but how we meet fear is really determined by past actions. Many of them have just been internalized without us even realizing it. How much of our actions are just internalized from what we've learned? Most of them, right? most of them. It doesn't mean you're a victim of karma because every moment that you do something or don't do something, you're contributing to this storehouse of karma. So then, the Buddha says, tireless energy was aroused in me, and unremitting mindfulness was established. My body was tranquil and untroubled, my mind concentrated and unified. That's the top of page uh, one, two, three. So, okay, so here's what we know. We know that um, there was virya, there was energy. So the Buddha's um, feeling fear. And then during sitting, the Buddha's feeling quite a lot of energy and then starts experiencing some calmness. And then as the body settles, starts feeling quite unified, okay? And I would say, this is basically what we're doing, shamatha practice, which is you come back to your breath, you come back to your breath, mindfulness of breathing over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And every time you come back to the anchor of your breath, you're coming back to present experience as it happens in your body. Can everybody feel this now? We get taken away, we come back, and as you come back, you start to pull power out of those distractions and those old habits, and you get calmer and calmer and calmer. So, in the 52 mental states that the Buddha describes in the Pali Canon. Fear is not one of the mental states, which I find very interesting. And some commentators and scholars suggest that the reason why fear is not considered a mental state is that the Buddha considered fear a subset of aversion. That fear is on a spectrum that begins with leaning away from experience. And I think that psychologically, this is a helpful way of thinking about fear, is that when we're fearful, we're leaning away from something emerging in the present. Even if what emerges in the present is a fantasy about the future, it still has to emerge in the present moment. So, I think it's really helpful to sit on retreat like this 
and experience anxiety or fear or worry, if that comes up for you. I'm not saying everybody here should like try and find some fear. <laughs> but just like to notice when that's happening, so you can notice it 500 times in a day. Or 5,000. So that by the time you get to 499, you're like, okay, this is a thing. <laughs> this is a pattern. And you can recognize it. It's really hard to work with something if you can't recognize it as a pattern. Because it always seems new. Right? So if you can't keep seeing the fear from a place of stillness, then every time it comes up, it seems new again. And you stay anxious. And that's the beauty of getting quiet, is you start to see, oh, okay, here it is. I can see this, I can feel this. Oh, I really want to get up. I want to yell. Wouldn't you say that, that fear is tricky because it, it, it leaks out in so many different ways that you wouldn't identify as it being fear? But when you Let's really save sit, it, let's save it for later. Okay. I'm gonna monologue for a little bit, okay. and then we'll do questions later. Um, so I'm gonna suggest that you track your fear and like count it. Not literally, like, like don't actually go one, two, you know. But just like acknowledge it in such a way where you keep seeing the pattern. So that you don't keep wasting good resources meeting something that seems new every time it comes up. And that's the torture of meditation practice. Is, oh my God, haven't I like thought this already? <laughs> oh, and eventually it's like, oh, this is a dead end. And we learned the Buddha, for example, did years of practice that he found to be a dead end. Oh, this is a dead end. I noticed this in my own life because I told you I'm a worrier. So I have to plan. You know? So I always ask myself, how can I plan and worry less? <laughs> how, do, how, how do we all make plans? And, and like not have so much tightness around those plans. So they can shift, so they're malleable, so they change. My, my wife and I put an enormous amount of work into a vegetable garden that seems to be growing out of control right now. And um, so then recently, there was a property for sale near our house. She's like, oh, we should move there. Uh, it's smaller, easier to manage, and uh, it's kind of a cool place. And I had like a heart, a heart palpitation. <laughs> it was more than a palpitation, I had a panic attack. Because now I'm so attached to this land, and, and, and I always think, oh, I'm gonna live in this land a long time because I wanna be a steward for this land. Where we moved in, onto a piece of property where the soil's not very good. So we've been like really working this land so that the soil is not as eroded because it's on a cliff and really needs love. Karina's easy about it. She's like, yeah, we'll work really hard on this land and if we want to leave, we'll leave. <laughs> for me, it's like, wow. I mean, she's very advanced. <laughs> so, the job of a yogi is to put yourself in edge states 
where you're uncomfortable. In orchards at night, in cemeteries, in places where you feel fearful. Maybe some of you, your, more, your most fearful spaces are not in the natural world, but they're interpersonal. Maybe it's like talking to strangers. So get in the car, go drive to an area of town where you don't know anybody so that you, know, you won't be embarrassed if it doesn't go well. And go strike up a conversation with somebody and just see what happens. The whole point of what we were doing last night in our experiments was just to say that when we're scared, we can try new things. But first we have to calm down so that we can recognize we're scared and that we're working out of reactivity. When you feel scared, um, can you sit down and meditate? You have a practice now. Maybe you forgot. Uh, don't confront the fear directly. Just make yourself calm. Just make yourself calm. Start with your breathing. And the more the mind is with your breath, the less it's engaged with the fear. So don't try and engage the fear. First, just stay connected to your breathing. And then you take some of the power out of the fear. And really let go at the end of the exhale. When you exhale, just let go. As best you can. And then start to ask, you know, is this permanent? Is the fear changing? How am I experiencing in my body? Is it fooling me? How? And see if you can disidentify with the fear. There have been quite a few notes about uh, uh, people's struggles with their kids and especially adolescents and like I don't really know much about how to work with adolescents it's a I try and I even started a program for teaching meditation to adolescents um, so I'm just learning um, but a few things that I will say about fear and anxiety with kids the first thing is, the most important thing is that you model practice. So if you're in a rush to teach meditation to your kids, um, first model the practice at home. Some of you don't have your own kids, but you're around kids. So you can also be the person in their life who's modeling practice. And as adults, whether it's a biological kid or not, when you see a kid that's stressed and worried and anxious and fearful, it really tugs at your heart. And it often causes us, I hate to say, to exacerbate their anxiousness. 
and their sadness or loneliness or whatever. Because kids look to adults to help them manage and regulate what they're feeling. So if their feelings are bringing up stress and anxiety in the adults around them, it's going to exacerbate the anxiety or whatever mood they're in. If a parent is obviously anxious, then the child will have a hard time calming down. And I think it's really hard for parents to admit the level of anxiety that comes up for them around their children because they get so focused on the symptoms of the kid, not what they're bringing to it and how they're breathing and how they feel in their body and what their eyes are doing and what their face is doing and so on. So, when you're with kids who are scared, have a calm voice. Stay connected to your breathing. Don't do anything that makes you leave your body. I'm going to say that every day. Talk slowly. Talking fast and giving advice makes everybody anxious. Talk slow, but not like exaggerated. My mom does this. She like gets, she, she talks really quietly and really slow when she wants to calm me down. And it's really annoying. <laughs> but what you're trying to demonstrate for your child that in the face of their anxiety, you're not afraid. And in the face of their stress, you're not afraid. So what you're doing is you're validating their emotion without exacerbating it. So hard to do. Because what a lot of times a parent does is a kid says, you know, I'm scared. And the parent says, you're not scared. You're just, do you hear that? You're not scared, you're. So the goal is to reduce the kid's anxiety, but what it does is it invalidates what they're feeling. Because it has this line in it, you're not scared. It's a strong message to say to someone who just said that they're scared. And what it does is it conveys to the child that they don't know what they're feeling. And then it also conveys that the parent doesn't understand what they're feeling. So what you want to do is you want to encourage the child to stay in their feeling. So it would be great to meet them. If they can identify that they're scared, that's a miracle that they're fearful. And then for you to say, you're scared? Just so open, right? Oh, you're scared? <coughs> and if they say anything else about their fear, your job is just to say, it's okay. It's okay to be scared. Mm -hmm. We all get scared. What they're scared of? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily. Your job is just to like, Create a place where they can be scared. If they want to talk about being scared, they can talk about being scared. If they don't want to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it. 
But if you create a good space, they'll probably in time talk about it, but it might not happen for a couple weeks. But that first meeting is so important because it sends so many signals. So here's another thing you could say. What do you need? What would be soothing right now? What would be soothing right now is basically saying, you're scared. I might not be able to soothe you, but can you find out for yourself what would be soothing right now? If it's a little person, like under five, you could even say, you know, let's be brave together. Let's find out about this. So here's the point. The point is to join, right? To join your kid where they're at. And now after saying all that, um, I'll also say that this is really good for your partner too. <laughs> if you live with someone or have like someone important in your life, um, you can do all the same things. It's not just for kids. But usually how we're parented really comes out in how we meet other people's emotions. And this is compassion, this is sympathy. The etymology of the word sympathy is really interesting. Uh, sin uh, means uh, together and pathos means suffering. Together suffering. It means to have a fellow feeling. For two people's feelings to be lined up. They're in accordance. Feelings are in accordance. Attunement. And it's interesting, the word accord comes from the root accordus, which is your heart. To be in accordance is to be in your heart. And for your heart to be lined up with somebody else's heart. And that's a superpower. <laughs> So, the Buddha says he gets really calm. His heart is lined up. Fear might be present, but now he's really calm. And for most of us, that's like the map that we have for meditation practice. It kind of ends there. Okay, get really calm. We continue practicing mindfulness. Then, suddenly, the text takes a totally different direction. This part gets excited. So here's what happens. You might have read it quickly if you're not at the edge of your seat. The Buddha then says, quite secluded from sensual pleasures. Okay, so he's gotten calm. This is you. This is you on your cushion today. He had a moment. He started to feel calm. And then the Buddha says, now, secluded from sensual pleasures. Now, most 
commentators think of this as secluded again, like secluded by yourself in the forest. But I don't think so. I think it means secluded from the desire for sensual gratification. Right? Secluded from unwholesome states. Do you remember what this term unwholesome meant? States of craving. I entered upon, so he, he suddenly discovered the first jhana. Jhana is the Pali word for the Sanskrit term dhyana. Dhyana is the seventh limb of yoga in Ashtanga Yoga, according to Patanjali. In Patanjali's system of yoga, there is dharana, which is the practice of mindfulness, which is coming back to the object again and again and again, right? Which is what we're doing. We've been practicing dharana, okay? And then, Patanjali says in the Yoga Sutra, this naturally leads, you kind of bump in to this experience of more sustained concentration. Or in uh, Buddhist terms, we call it access concentration, which is dhyana. And then in the Yoga Sutra, dhyana has eight different levels, which are called, which are under the umbrella term samadhi, which is the eighth limb of yoga, which are eight stages of meditation. All of that is rooted in the Buddhist framework of the jhanas, which are eight levels also, surprise, um, of concentration. Okay. And I think what's interesting about this map is that a lot of people never learn it and have some of these experiences, but don't have any kind of understanding of what's happening for them. Right? It's just like nowadays, you just pull out your GPS, right? And the thing about a GPS system is like, it's a map where you're always in the center, right? And that can be really helpful to kind of know where you are, all right? So it's likewise, the Buddha now is going to kind of map out what happens when your mind gets calm. And for some of you, this might be like, whoa, this is really far out. And for others, it might be, um, none of this is happening to me, but I want it to. And for other people, this might be, oh, I've actually tasted some of these experiences. Okay. And the other reason why this is important is for mental health. Because I think there are people who through the use of plants or through synthetic drugs or chanting, dancing, art making, whatever, kind of have these experiences, but don't have any framework for what's happening in the experience. So A, they can't integrate it, and B, it can create instability or what people call a bad trip. But it's usually not, like bad trips are usually not bad trips. They're just not having a familiarity with the map, if that, like if, with maps, if that makes sense. Okay? So now here comes the map. 
I entered the first jhana. Is this okay? Are we following along? Which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought. Uh, the words there are vitarka and vichara. Vitarka, or in Pali, vitaka, is thinking, and vichara is examining. With rapture and pleasure born of seclusion. Rapture is pity, and pleasure is sukha. So let me break this down a little bit, so you kind of understand. So, you're sitting, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath. And then, you start having the experience of being able to stay with the breath. And then, you notice after a while, that cravings are not creeping in to the meditative space. And it might last 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. This could be really short. It's not necessarily like an hour or something. It could just be like 20 seconds, okay? Just real calmness. And then there's vitarka and vichara. So there's thinking and examining but it's, you're, you're ignoring it. It's like the thinking used to be here in the foreground, and now it's in the background. Do you understand? So your thoughts have not stopped. They're still thinking, but everything's really calm. And then two characteristics arise. Both have to arise for it to be considered the first jhana. The first characteristic is pity. Pity is, which is considered the primary characteristic. If there's sukha but no pity, it's not jhana. So pity is the sense of absorption or rapture. And sukha is pleasure or sweetness. Okay? And then, that's the first jhana. Okay? So, if you want to learn how to practice the first jhana, the way you do it is with just a little bit of technique. When you feel calm, and I think it's hard to do this when you're not on retreat, but when you're feeling calm, feeling your breath, go into your body, and see if you can find some place in your body where you feel pleasure. Okay, so a lot of times for people it's in the upper part of their body. And sometimes it's even like inside the current of the breath. So it's like there's a place they're feeling their breath. And they start feeling, oh, this is pleasurable. Okay? And then... You try to stay with the pleasure, all right? And it's a little bit like having a relationship with a cat, okay? You have to kind of like notice the pleasure over here. If you give the pleasure too much attention, it'll take off. So if you're like, pleasure, <laughs> then the whole thing crumbles. So it's like you're just feeling pleasure but you're learning how to not, this is a great practice, right? Because you're learning how to feel pleasure without holding on or wanting more, 
Okay. When you can stay with pleasure, that's called pity, then sukha arises. Sukha, which is the opposite of dukkha, sukha is a sense of sweetness, pleasure, happiness even. Okay? According to the map, you need both. You can't just have the pleasure part. You have to stay with the pleasure part long enough that it brings this feeling of happiness. And then that could last maybe for like a minute. And then your ego comes in and kills it every time, destroys it. But you just had a taste. You just had a taste of a level of concentration that resets. Here's what's important about it. It resets how you can experience yourself. You see? It changes the orientation for what's possible to experience as a baseline of sanity for yourself. And that's why it's important. And for all the Zen people and other traditions that are not into those kind of techniques, it's good to listen to this. Because it does help refine your concentration and it changes like some of the habits around which you pivot that don't always come from basic mindfulness practice. So you really get concentrated. And then part of the practice is to see how the ego comes in and kills it. Just like you do with yourself all the time when you're happy. Right? You ever like been on a date and it's going really well? And you're like out and everything's great, the day is beautiful, and you had a good meal. Has anybody done this or no? No? Oh, yeah. I keep using these, like, examples from the real world. Okay, or television. But, so imagine... I think everybody knows the feeling where you've gone on a date, things are going really well, and there's a part of you that can't believe things are going really well. And then you start to, like, not trust it. Like, am I going to screw it up? Is this too good to be true? Am I missing something? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like, like, just the habits of the ego kind of just wreck it. I can't let myself be happy. I got to go home and put black clothes on again. <laughs> So, are we clear about what's happening in this first level of concentration? Okay. So then, I'm not going to focus so much on the next three, but I'll just describe them in my own words. So, the next thing that happens is vitara and, um, vitarka and vichara, so the thinking and examining, the analysis mind, it just kind of dissolves. 
Okay, you don't even know where it is in the background anymore. And now, remember how um, pity was primary and sukha was secondary? Now it switches. Okay? So the pity is not the primary characteristic. The pleasure is not the primary characteristic. It's more this feeling of equanimity and happiness. And this is the stage where weird things start happening to your body. So sometimes people start to feel a lot of heat in their face or uh, tingly. It happens a lot, uh, like not always, but for most people it's in the upper. It's up. It's moving up. And uh, you can get tingles and numbness and like just start sweating. Um, all kinds of stuff happen. And this usually freaks people out. And uh, most meditation teachers don't know what's going on either because they didn't learn a lot <laughs> in a lot of communities. Um, so they're just like, go back to your breathing. Uh, forget just it. Say, don't, it's, it's, don't it's nothing. Anything. Yeah, it's nothing. It's nothing. But actually, it's worth getting into a little bit, which is to try and stay focused now on the joy in the experience, a little less focused on the pleasure. Okay, so remember they've, they've switched now. Can you say that again? Okay, so in the first jhana, the primary characteristic is the pleasure, and there's this kind of happiness around it. The second jhana, they switch, and the thinking examining mind is not really around anymore. And that's why it can be a little disconcerting and people can kind of freak out a little bit because suddenly they start experiencing things happening in their body and then the thinking mind's not there. So they're, they just like get really disoriented and really freaked out. So I'm saying all this because some people experience this and like it's not good experience. It actually scares them. You might be thinking, yeah, bring, give me some of this. <laughs> but for some people, it really, it really scares them. Yeah. Isn't that the chakras getting activated? There's lots of different maps for this. The Buddha doesn't talk about chakras or kundalini or those models. They come later on in history, later on in time. Uh, they're more medieval models. So what you're saying, just to be clear, is that yep. this second stage can be un settling or unnerving because the discerning mind isn't there telling you what's happening. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, there's two more levels that I'm not going to get into because that's enough. Um, but you can read about them. Uh, so altogether there are eight jhanas, only four of which the Buddha talks about in his experience of awakening. The way I learned the jhanas, which I still try and practice, but I find very difficult, is you learn the first one, you learn the second one, you learn the third one, you learn the fourth one. You learn how to tell them apart, and then you try and practice going back through them so that you actually can try and master which one you're in 
and then try and leave it and go back to the one that was before. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But it's a really interesting practice. Could you repeat that again? So, so you learn first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, but then you learn how to really tell them apart, and then you learn how to go backwards through them. So when you're in the fourth jhana, you're like, okay, now I'm going to stop, and I'm going to go back to the previous jhana. And there's a woman um, named Shaila Catherine whose book you should read about this called Focused and Fearless, which is a really good book. Um, and she, I don't know if it's in the book or where, but she talks about how she can actually determine ahead of time how long she's going to stay in it for. Just like, I'm going to be in there for 30 minutes. And then 30 minutes. What is her name? Really, Shaila Catherine. So, um, I'm not sure what to do. Should we stop here, because now we're at 4.44? Or should we maybe take like a five minute stretch break and then keep going till dinner and try and get through the next section? Keep going? Do you need to stretch your legs or anything? No. Let's stretch our legs. <laughs> I can tell by your posture. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.